Hello and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. I am your host this week, Jensen Beeler of Asphalt and Rubber, and joining me all the way from Japan, Suzuka Steve. Steve, good to have you on the show. Hi, Jens. Good to be back on the show. Yeah, um, obviously uh, you're sitting somewhere in a hotel room on the other side of the ocean from me. We must be talking about the Suzuka 8 Hours. Yeah, I'm sitting in an airport hotel. I've got probably about 36 hours in the hotel before flying back home. And uh, yeah, it's been pretty busy. Obviously, with the race yesterday, you sort of just have all your work to get done pretty quickly in the aftermath of it. And uh, I'll tell you what, there was just not enough time to be able to talk about and write about everything that we saw in yesterday's race. It was probably just about the best race I've ever seen in any class of racing. Yeah, you know, we were talking about it before the show, Steve. It really was an excellent race. You don't expect an endurance race, especially something that's eight hours long, to be kind of nail-biting, close racing for that duration. And it totally delivered on that promise. Yeah, when we talked in the preview podcast that we did last week, we were talking about, like, this could be a great race. This could be an all-timer. This could be one of those races that we're talking about for years. But I don't think we thought it was going to be three bikes separated by 20 seconds at the start of the final hour. I don't think we thought that it was going to be a race that was going to come down to appeals processing, looking through rule books. You know, this was a race that had everything. And it really was amazing. Like when you look at just how close all three bikes were throughout most of the race, you factor in that the Suzuki was really fast at the start of the race, really good when Gintoli was on the bike. You know, this was a race that had a bit of everything. Yeah, what was uh, surprising for me is just how much of the race was spent with the the lead bikes, not just on the same lap as each other, not just like within, you know, side of each other, but, you know, showing a wheel, making passes. I would love actually to see how many times the lead changed over the course of the race because dozens and dozens of times would have to be the answer. It was uh, truly hard fought uh, racing over the, over the entire course of uh, the Suzuki 8 Hours, which... Is a great way to end the FIM Endurance World Championships. It's a great way to kind of uh, showcase this, you know, in some parts of the world, probably the most important motorcycle race of the year. Uh, yeah, and I think just like going back to what you were asking there, Jay, like uh, there was 20 lead changes of the race officially. So that a lead change isn't anytime there's an overtake move, it's anytime that there's a change at the end of the lap. So we had 20 different lead changes over the course of the race. And uh, as you said, this is the biggest race of the year, the biggest single event of the year for the Japanese manufacturers. There's a lot of pressure on all the riders for it. And for them all to be able to go to that level through the course of the full eight hours really was pretty impressive. Yeah, extremely impressive. Um, Let's just jump right into it, Steve. Maybe you can tell me who won the Suzuki 8 Hours because it seems like an obvious question that I know the answer to, but uh, when I went to bed last night, I wasn't actually 100% sure that the team I reported on winning actually won, and sure enough, this morning, that seemed to be the case. Yeah, well, it was the Kawasaki, the number 10 Kawasaki, Jonathan Ray, Leon Haslam, and officially Top Rack Razgari Obviously, Top Rack only took part in qualifying and practice, didn't actually get out in the race. But they were declared the winners after nigh on three hours, four hours of appeals that had gone through. And uh, eventually it was found that uh, Kawasaki, despite a crash at the very end of the race, despite not actually getting the back bike back to the pits, that they were going to be reinstated as the race winners. And what was quite interesting was the FIM race control 
and uh, the stewards panel when they were making the announcement to say that the Kawasaki had been reinstated because in their initial findings they said that uh, the number 10 Kawasaki would be excluded from the results because it didn't get back to the pits within five minutes. When the appeal was heard it was determined that the rule book doesn't actually have that five minute rule and Kawasaki rightly were able to make a, a, a report and, and an appeal that said that you know what, a red flag is different to a checkered flag. In the rule book, it says after a checkered flag, you have to get back within five lap, five minutes, but nothing about a red flag. And Jensen, obviously, you're of a legal mind. And uh, for the FIM stewards, they said that even though they completely disagreed with putting Kawasaki back into the, into the results sheet, they felt that they had no choice because if this went to a court of law, as it would do to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, there would have been absolutely no chance of the results standing. It would have been overturned and Kawasaki would have been determined the race winners. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, before the show started, we were talking about the uh, the uh, exclusion of cert from the results after after causing um, the oil to be spilled on the track. And and there's nothing that actually says in the rule book about uh, the, the team or the rider that causes a red flag incident being excluded from the results. So that's another kind of oddity that we kind of take um as law in racing but actually isn't uh, written down so a little bit interesting to see where race direction went with all this um i mean I, i'm curious what your personal opinion is steve like taking the legalities of it out of the way i mean i i think i think right was done by the end of the day i think kawasaki deserved to win the suzuka eight hours change my opinion well, for me, I think that the best team and the best group of riders and the best strategy won the race, but the right team didn't win the race. I think it should have been the number 21 Yamaha team that won the race because I think it's important to get back to the pits. I think it's important to have uniformity across the different world championships. And the five minute rule is there in every other FAM world championship. Now, it was brought in initially in World Superbikes. And once it was introduced, the... Um, FIM and uh, the MotoGP race direction, they then looked at this rule and said, you know what, actually that rule makes a lot of sense. Let's put that into our rule book. And as far as I know, there has been a motion tabled to put it into the Endurance World Championship regulations, but it never actually got put into the rules. So you'd imagine that that will be changed very soon and we'll get a press release saying that, you know, this kind of an incident would lead to uh, a rider and a team not being classified in the future but for me it left a bad taste in the mouth for five for eight for eight hours for seven hours 58 minutes and 37 seconds we had the best race i've ever seen and then suddenly we had to wait you know three or four hours for it to actually be classified we suddenly had this massive confusion where everyone in the paddock didn't know what was happening i was down just walking into the kawasaki pit box when jonathan crashed and I was going down just to get like your photos of the race winners. And then suddenly, because he had crashed, I just had to run up towards the Yamaha pit box to try and get the same sort of pictures. And I'm in the Yamaha pit box and I can see Vandermark and Nakasuga and they're both wondering like, have we won? What's the story? And then suddenly the red flags out and they're assuming that, uh, you know, it probably is the same rules as what you have in World Superbikes or in MotoGP. And then suddenly it starts to dawn on the team that maybe it's a bit different in the endurance racing. And I saw that Vandermark immediately went next door to the Yark team to try and find out what the story was. And he was talking to Brock Parks, who was trying to explain some of the 
endurance regulations to Van der Mark and then they go down to the Park Fermi situation and Van der Mark's looking around to see the number 10 Kawasaki and there's no sign of it. And then suddenly it starts to dawn on them, you know what, I think we have won this race. An official comes over, says, yeah, you're the race winner. They're able to celebrate up on the podium, they get their t-shirts and uh, suddenly, you know, a couple of hours later, it's, you know what, actually none of that happened. You didn't win the race and it just... It looks it's a bad luck for any championship whenever there's so much confusion about it. And for me, I think that over the balance of the race, the Kawasaki was the best team out there. There were 20 seconds in front by the time of the crash. But the most important thing in endurance racing is you have to avoid crashes, incidents. You have to have a bit of luck on your side. And for me, the Kawasaki didn't have that luck. It crashed on oil. It wasn't a mistake from Jonathan Ray, but... In equal terms, he was the only rider that crashed in that in that patch of the racetrack. You know, we had two laps where everyone went through that section without crashing. Jonathan said that he was a little bit offline because he had overtaken someone a couple of corners earlier and it sort of pushed him into the wrong place in the racetrack. But he was the only rider that crashed in the conditions. It's very unfortunate. But I, I think that uh, for me, it just left a bad taste in the mouth. I mean, I, I definitely agree with you on the point that, you know, we had almost eight hours of perfect racing and it kind of gets spoiled by what I would call is the, the lack of professionalism. Like, I mean, that's what it comes down to for me. If you're the race organization and you don't know the rules and you don't know how to categorize, like, obviously this is, this is kind of um, a fluke thing to have happen. But if you don't know how to deal with those situations and and not knowing who won the race after the checker flag, not knowing if the teams on the uh, the podium ceremony are the right teams on the right podiums, uh, it, it is very re- weird and it does kind of take something away from the sport. So I agree with you on all those accounts. And, um, you know, I wish I wish it hadn't ended that way to, to play devil's advocate to agree with you for a minute. You know, if this had happened 10 minutes earlier, you know, if Jonathan Ray had, had crashed on that oil when it wasn't, um, so close to the finish, you know, would we, you know, how would we approach that situation? And I don't think we'd be approaching it in the same way that we are now. I think it's because it was so close to the finish. I think it's because the red flag ended the race, um, that, you know, it, it adds a dynamic that goes beyond just kind of like the circumstances of, of what happened on the track. And that's tough to separate because uh, if it had been, you know, at the seven and a half hour mark, we would have said, man, that's just really bad luck. I can't believe Jonathan Ray crashed, you know, again while the Kawasaki was doing so well, you know, handing the win over to Yamaha. Um, but at the end of the day, like Steve, like I look at it, you know, they, they were the team that should that should win it and they did win it and they're within the rules of it like there's for me it's like we agreed on a set of rules we went racing on a set of rules this is how it is like we 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 abided by everything that we agreed to in the rule book um the yeah, only unfortunate part is there was just a little bit of confusion before we reached that point that made everything right 
Yeah, and that's that's a hundred percent right as well. The one thing about it is that if this incident happened even five minutes earlier, not 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 ten minutes earlier, five minutes earlier, they would have put the safety car out. They would have just said, "Okay, let's put them out, safety car conditions, and let's get them to the end of the race." Because this happened with less than ninety seconds remaining, with a crash at turn five, there was just about the right amount of time for Ray to get back to the start finish line on eight hours and a couple of seconds. So this was the last lap of the race. This was just to be able to try and get to the finish. And if it had happened any earlier, I think they would have just put the safety car out and they would have been able just to get everyone back to finish the race after eight hours. And that's why it's unfortunate it happened when it did. Also, it's lucky that it happened when it did in terms of the Kawasaki because, as you said, Jensen, there, there are the rules set aside that you have to race by. This just strikes me as being... um a regulation that should have been closed off and particularly whenever race control seemed to have no idea that it should have been closed off or what the rule was because in the rider briefing um apparently it was said you've got your five minutes to get back you know so there's a lot of confusion about it i think a hundred percent as as i said that the best team and the best group won the race but it's just the fact that it seemed such a a black mark against the WC that uh, it's just a shame that that's how the race finishes. I think that when you look at, we've seen similar instances in the past in other, in other series, even just like in world Superbikes in the last few years, we've had a couple of instances like this. You only have to go back a couple of weeks to see Tom Sykes losing a podium for a similar level of misfortune in Donington park. And it's crap when it happens like that. And equally, it's crap when it happens like this because there's just that level of confusion and there's someone that's, you know, you can easily have it where, in Sykes's case, a deserved podium goes missing. And in Kawasaki's case for this race, a deserved win, they're able to hold on to it because you don't want to see races decided by anything other than what happens out on track. And it's just unfortunate that for such a long period of time afterwards, there was no decision made. If this decision was made straight away and the race direction were able to say, do you know what, in our rule book, this is what the story is. It would have been much better in my mind. But the fact that you had the race direction coming out and saying, we don't really agree with this decision, but we've got no choice. It just strikes you that uh, there wasn't the un- there wasn't the correct level of attention paid to their regulations when other championships were making the relevant changes. No, I think that's completely fair. It 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 highlights to me, Steve, like just how many standard deviations beyond the normal that this this occurred in. Um, I mean, we'll never probably see a situation like this at Suzuka ever again. It's just so weird. It's just so strange to see. One, it's so weird to see a bike blow its motor and stay on the racing line for an eternity and just oiling a track as the rain's coming down and, uh, you know, and then to have racing conclude so close to the end of the race, to see the race leader crashing. Um, I mean, if I see that again in my lifetime, it's like, it's like Haley's Comet in a way, you know, it's, I've, I've seen it once. I'll probably never see it again. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be a cloudy day in Portland the next time it happens. You see, that's nah. <laughs> that's probably true too. Uh, explain to me a little bit the circumstances behind the red flag coming out because it, that I think was confusing to watch. So uh, maybe we back up to when uh, Cert blows their motor on, on the track. 
Okay, so the Cert blows its motor with five minutes left in the race. There's five minutes left in the championship as well. Cert are in a championship winning position. Right. So obviously <laughs> for their rider, they want to make sure that either A, we get a red flag or B, you're able to get that bike back to the pits because you just need a couple of points to be able to win the championship. So what we saw from the Cert rider was doing what pretty much everyone's told in endurance racing, get your bike back to the pits if you've got a problem. You need to be able to keep running. But unfortunately, this engine blow up happened on the run down in towards turn one it's 5.8 kilometers around suzuka there's no way you're going to be able to coast a bike back to the pits but he's just trying to make sure he's able to give himself that best chance i was talking to a couple of different riders about it javi Fares said that the rider should be absolutely punished that this was ludicrously dangerous that it's a night it, it was a night session you have no chance about being able to see any fluid on the track and the rider knew exactly what he was doing to cut across the track like that was really dangerous. And that's, again, a, a very valid point from Fares that for any rider to leave that much fluid across a racetrack and then cross the racing line, it's uh, just bringing unnecessary danger out there. There was team managers saying that this was putting other riders' lives at risks. And uh, then you've got the uh, the other hand of it where Sylvain Gintoli was saying that, you know what? He, he never looks behind him. He feels a loss of power. He doesn't really know what's causing it. And uh, the rider doesn't look back to see whether or not there's a ton of smoke coming out of the bike, whether or not there's any fluid going down. He's only thinking about trying to get himself back to the pits. So there's two different schools of thoughts. And uh, I think that um, it's one of those ones where if this incident happens a half an hour earlier, it's a very different complexion put on it. But because it happens right at the end of the race, because it happens when there's a world championship to be won, because it brings out the incident for the race leader as well, it's just a lot of factors all going into it. And it was, again, just a bit like Haley's comment, just a confluence of incidents uh, that all came together at the wrong time to cause a perfect storm for the chaos that then ensued because there was a lot of things after it where everyone's running up and down the pit lane trying to figure out what's actually happened and for the couple of hours afterwards like the suzuka podium is the most convoluted podium celebration i've ever seen <laughs> every year you you stand there and you think jesus when's this gonna end because yeah, you've got fair. like the endure you've got the race podium the endurance world championship podium you know everything like that you've got fireworks you've got you know, guys up on stage wielding fireworks on the end of sticks just uh, in a showcase. You've got songs. All of this goes on for about 25 minutes. And then you go back into the press conference afterwards. And then you've got your race press conference for the three teams that have won the race. And then you've got your Endurance World Championship press conference for the winning teams in the in the World Championship. So it, it all goes on for probably about an hour at the best of times. So the riders are sitting there in their leathers after the podium waiting for the press conference. And then suddenly they're still waiting for the press conference. They're waiting a little bit longer. I was sitting in the press conference room wondering, what the hell's the hold up here? And then, you know, I got a text from from one of the riders just to say, like, oh, yeah, there's been a little bit of a delay. And, you know, they're just trying to figure out what's happened. Kawasaki seemed to have made an appeal. And then suddenly you're trying to figure out, I wonder what's going to happen with the appeal. So I went down to Kawasaki. And the team just closed ranks. They weren't going to let their riders talk. They weren't going to let the team manager talk. They weren't going to let anything come out until a decision had been made. And you go back up into the press conference room, still waiting it out. The 
podium riders are sitting there in their leathers waiting to find out whether or not they've actually won the race. And eventually, after about, it must have been an hour and a half after the race had finished, the uh, podium riders were told, okay, go back, get yourself changed out of your leathers and come back when a decision's been made by the FIM. So at all this time, media members are sitting in the press conference room wondering what's happening. I've been going up and down to try and find out any information I can find, mainly because I'm bored and I don't want to sit in the press conference room for two hours waiting for a press conference that, you know, whenever you're on deadline, that could never happen or can keep getting delayed. So I just ended up running around trying to find out, get some thoughts from different people. And eventually, whenever I'm sitting in the media center, just trying to get a little bit of work done, I see the FIM officials walking down through the media center. And that's whenever you suddenly realize, okay, a decision's being made and we're eventually going to find out something. And that's when the FIM made their announcement. And it was a strange announcement because as the race director kept talking, you were just listening to it. And it was one of those ones where you're kind of just thinking that the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that the results being overturned because they're trying to offer, you know, clarification on things. And eventually, whenever it was decided that Kawasaki had been declared the race winner, everyone inside that press conference room suddenly thought, and you could hear just like discontent from different journalists just thinking like, how did that happen? And then suddenly we're then in a situation where we're waiting for the press conference to start to then get like everyone's opinion on what had happened. Hmm. Explain for me, Steve, um, the situation at turn five for Jonathan Ray. So he goes offline, he hits the oil, he takes a spill. We saw that on TV if, for those that were watching the, the live stream. Why does that cause a red flag or is that a, the cause of the red flag? Well, that's what my question as well was afterwards, because everyone talks about the cert bike causing the red flag, but it happened, you know, three, four, five minutes earlier. So what caused the red flag? Was it suddenly that another rider had crashed on this oil or was it that there was oil on the track? And again, it's one of those gray areas. As you said earlier on, Jensen, there's no, nothing in the rule book. It's just sort of in the etiquette of the sport where you think that if you've caused a red flag you shouldn't be classified in the results but who caused the red flag you know and it's it's certainly i think 99 percent of everyone that you'd poll on it would say that the red flag was caused by the oil that was dropped by the cert but i'm sure that there's one percent that would say you know what in endurance racing you got to adapt you got to understand the conditions and you've got to ride around them and that 1% might say you know what and time had passed and then suddenly there's a crash for only one rider out there that maybe the red flag had been caused by the other rider you know I think for me it's pretty clear that the track contamination cause is caused from the cert machine Ray crashes on that and like I said earlier on if this happened 10 minutes earlier you'd look at it and think like oh my god that is the most unfortunate thing that you're going to see in racing other than Toyota at the Le Mans 24 hours having their problem on literally the last lap of that 24 hour race a couple of miles from home where it cost them the race victory you're thinking like I've never seen anything that's so unfortunate in racing but that's what you would have looked at as you would have looked at it as misfortune for Kawasaki and that's where everything in this just creates 
such drama. And that's where it's so unfortunate that the decision wasn't wasn't made immediately where race direction knew and understood their rules. You know, I do a bit of racing and, and I've seen a fair share of red flags for, for blown motors. You know, it, there is a certain amount of delay between the incident and the uh, the idea to, to put out a red flag. And I would imagine there has to be some dialogue within race direction of, okay, this has happened. We are so close to the finish. What what do we do? You know, you hope they always err on the side of safety. Um, but I could see that conversation being like, well, you know, hey, if we can just get away with one more lap, this thing's done. We don't have to deal with the red flag nonsense. Um and I keep coming back to the idea that it was raining, well, drizzling. It, it's nighttime. It's hard to see what exactly the situation is. Did the belly pan catch all the oil or is it dropping oil on the track? I think it would be very hard for a corner worker to know. What, what I'm curious from you, though, is having a rider crash at turn five, especially in the dark, does that create an undue uh, kind of safety risk that would, that would cause red flag on its own if we just take away all the other externalities? Is that a safe well, place cause, to have a bike? It wouldn't cause a red flag. It would cause a safety car. So if this happens, okay. you know, a couple of minutes earlier, safety car comes out and the 21 Yamaha wins the race. But it's, it's certainly a situation that. that's beyond just a, a waving yellow. Let's get them out of the way. Well, again, that's where you put out your double yellows and you sort of said that there's track workers out clearing a bike ride with caution, you know, and it's, the fact that it's an endurance race, the fact it's at night doesn't really change that because it's up to the riders to ride around those conditions. You're in it, like Jonathan Ray might well be a world superbike rider, but yesterday he was an endurance world championship rider. And it's up to EWC riders and endurance riders to understand the conditions that they're in. And there's 65 bikes out on track at Suzuka. Now, Suzuka's as I said earlier on, six kilometers long. So if you put all those bikes out on track together, you know, the the track gets so congested. There's so much running out there. There's the best riders in the world. And let's be honest, Jonathan Ray is the best superbike rider we've ever seen. He's got as much talent as anyone that you'll see riding the motorbike. He's got as much experience as any of those guys. He doesn't tend to make that many mistakes. It's unfortunate for Ray that he's made two mistakes two years in a row with Suzuka, last year's crash and this crash, you know, whether or not it's, you know, obviously a factor outside of his control this year. Last year, he stayed out on slicks in the wet, but this was a a strange incident, but you're an endurance rider. You have to ride to the conditions and we didn't see Takahashi crash. We didn't see Lowe's crash. We didn't see the endurance world championship regulars. Like uh, I think Josh Hook was on the TSR bike for the last stint. We didn't see them crash, you know, and we did see riders come through that corner after the incident. And that's where it's a bit strange. I think it's I just think it's so unfortunate that that's going to be the big talking point. Like we've we've let off this show for, I don't know, it must be over 10 minutes talking about this. And I really want to just talk about the race because this was such a good race and it was everything that you want the eight hours to be we had three different bikes separated by nothing for the whole race we had strategy coming into play we had the best superbike machinery in the world out there we had one of the best racetracks in the world i want to talk about that and it's so unfortunate that this race is going to be remembered for the end rather than the you know the seven hours 58 minutes beforehand 
Well, we're, we're actually a little over 20 minutes on this topic, Steve, but I'll get you to where you want to go in a second here. I just want to leave with the thought that I think it's incredibly interesting um, that we see Ray crash and we almost immediately see red flags from that. Not wa- not waving yellows, not a safety car, red flags, stop the race, this is over, and then we see the nonsense that comes that comes afterwards. And I think that's that's what's going to be kind of debated in perpetuity online and uh, in person and whenever this race is talked about because that's that's kind of the whole crux of it, that, that last-minute decision on how we're going to end this race, how we're going to deal with this incident, how we're going to deal with this oil, and then the reading of the rule book is the asterisk that will go on the uh, 2019 Suzuka 8 Hours. And um, like you said, it's a huge shame because there's so much good racing to talk about. And I, and I want to get to that t- uh, right now, actually, if we can. Yeah, I think just like to offer like one last thought about that. Like, I think for me that the big talking point shouldn't be so much about the incident. It should be about race direction because we're used to seeing in, let's say, MotoGP, where Mike Webb is your ultimate decision maker. We're used to seeing just that level of I don't think this would have happened in MotoGP like we've seen it where there has been questionable race direction decisions like let's look at this season Cal Crutchlow has his jump start in Argentina and I think everyone in the world watching it looked at it and said he didn't gain an advantage from that but the rules are there and the evidence was then put forward to everyone to show that this incident had happened and that Crutchlow was then given a jump start penalty a lot of the, a lot of people are looking at it saying like, oh, but it goes against the this it goes against the spirit or it goes against you know any competitive advantage, and if you think then only last weekend in British Superbikes we had Scott Redding make a jump start at Snetterton, and he stopped, got his foot down or at least didn't make any more forward progress and race direction in that race were able to say by our regulations we don't classify that as a jump start because no advantage was given in those two championships we saw pretty much immediate reaction from race direction that worked to the letter of their regulations and they understood everything immediately this was an incident where race direction didn't understand the regulations and that for me is probably the much bigger talking point because race direction should know what's right and what's wrong they should be able to make their decisions you know typically there's three people sitting on a panel to be able to make that decision you've got an fim delegate you've got a clerk of the course you've got you know local officials and they should be able to make a decision pretty much immediately on almost everything this is something that should have been known because like i know whenever we're looking at a world superbike race that it's up to it's up to the me as a commentator to be able to understand what's happening out there to be able to say, you know, definitively on air, this is why a decision's being made. This is what you'd expect to happen from this. You know, I would have thought that race direction for a race of this magnitude also would have been able to say pretty much definitively straight away that their rules hadn't been followed or had been followed. And then to explain it very quickly to the media, to the teams, to everyone watching at home, because we just witnessed a great race and then suddenly you're waiting three or four hours for the results to be officially confirmed. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you just said. And, and that's, <clears throat> that's the burden that's going to get put down at uh, race directions feet for, for the endurance world championship. And, and it's funny that you mentioned the, uh, the bit about the, the role of the commentator, because, you know, watching the live stream uh, here in uh, the United States, 
the commentators basically took off right after the finish, you know, the, the flat, the race was over. Um, so there was no one to explain to the fans what was going on. There's no one to explain it to the journalists, what's going on. There's barely anyone to explain it to the teams of what's going on. Uh, and that's, that's a part of the breakdown of race direction as well. That's their job to communicate what's going on and, and all of that. So, um, I agree with everything yeah, you say, quite, Steve, except for the part where uh, you're wrong about who won. <laughs> I was quite glad I wasn't a commentator for it because I was 100% sure you had a five-minute rule in this rule book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you dodged the bullet there. Let's let's talk about the uh, the other seven hours plus that was so amazing because there's, there's some good meat to these bones. And for me, um, you know, the shock was... Uh, the pace of the Honda and, and, and where they were against the Yamaha and against the Kawasaki and the strategy that they were running, you know, um, maybe you can, you can shed some insight on, on what has transpired behind the scenes to make Honda a true contender this year. Well, there's been lots of changes to the Fireblade and uh, we all know that the Honda struggled in other championships, whether you look at world championships or you look at uh, British Superbikes. Even Suzuka over the last few years, the Honda has struggled because the Fireblade just hasn't been a good enough bike. But it has been able to win races in the British Championship. It has been able to have good results and good potential at the Suzuka 8 hours. But this was the first year we saw a massive step forward. Obviously, last year was the first year where we saw an official HRC team returning to Suzuka. Over the few years before that, had been the 634 bike had pretty much been the de facto factory effort from HRC but last year we saw that this was a full effort being made again but there was circumstances that worked against them last year where you know Leon Camier was out injured and he missed out in the race so suddenly the team lost out on what could have potentially been their lead rider instead you had uh, Nakagami and Takahashi supported by PJ Jacobson Jacobson wasn't supposed to race last year and then suddenly whenever it was wet out on track they put PJ out there and so, you know, that was strategic mistakes were made at plenty by HRC last year. They really struggled to get the most from the package. But for this year, they made a big step forward. And a lot of that came from the fact that Takahashi was so strong because out on track, there was just a difference between that bike once Takahashi was out there than when anyone else was out there. When Bradle was out there, he was half a second slower than Takahashi. And uh, that can make a big difference whenever you're up against the likes of, you know, Jonathan Ray and Leon Haslam are both Suzuki 8-hour race winners. They've got tons of experience out there in the 8-hours. Yamaha's obviously won four in a row. If you're giving them an inch, they'll take a mile. And that drop-off from Takahashi to Bradle meant that Honda had to sort of take some gambles in the race. They had to try a few different things and one of the things they had to try was getting Takahashi to double stint at the end and unfortunately he just dropped like a stone in that final hour because it's so mentally draining to be out there in the eight hours and yesterday was the fastest eight hours anyone had ever seen even with a safety car we were still really close to hitting the you know I think it's 220 laps is the record for distance we were really close to hitting that mark despite a 15 minute safety car period so if you're out there for that extra hour at the end it's really easy for that just to get a bit too much for you and it seemed that for Takahashi at least in that final stint that it just uh, did make the big difference for him 
You know, it was interesting for me, Steve, watching the race. I think about for the first third of the race, I was really confident that that Honda was going to win. And then each stint, my my confidence level dropped considerably. You know, we talked, I think, in the preview show about the Honda advantage in terms of fuel efficiency. And that seemed like that was the game plan at the start of the race. We saw, uh, I think it was Brottle did 33 laps when the other guys were doing 27, 28. But he was still able to run their pace. And that seemed to bode very well. Hey, we can compete with them head to head, but we're also doing a fuel strategy that's going to save us a bunch of time at the end. You know, how can you possibly lose? And then that strategy seemed to go sideways. Was was that not the strategy from from the word go? Did that evolve over the course of the race or, or what happened there? Well, I think it was one of those ones where they had an advantage in terms of being able to stay out longer than everyone else. But it wasn't as long as what we'd seen in the past from them. Like if you look at over the last few years, you had seen that Honda just were able to make that massive advantage compared to everyone else out there. But uh, this year, it really wasn't as significant. We saw it where they were probably, I'd say it was able to do one lap longer than uh, Yamaha and uh, maybe two laps longer than Kawasaki. But it wasn't as significant an advantage as what we saw in the past, other than the first stint with the safety car period, they really weren't able to stay out there a lot longer than everyone else. It's interesting. It's interesting to see that. I mean, I was surprised to see that the Honda was able to compete head to head. I think that says a big testament to what the the engineers back at Honda were able to accomplish with the Fireblade for this year um, to bring it up to speed, to make it competitive, to to put it in the riders' hands. What's Interesting for me for Honda and, and Kawasaki as well is seeing them only really utilize two riders and to have riders with such, uh, let's say, uh, differing skills at Suzuka. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point, Jensen, as well. I think that uh, when we talked on the preview show, we were talking about the fact that for Takahashi on the bike, we knew he was going to be strong. We knew that he was going to be really good on his fuel. We knew that he was going to be the fastest rider for them. Stefan Bradl was doing his first eight hours, so we sort of thought that he'd be struggling a little bit, relative terms, and uh, that sort of played out like that. Takahashi was a lot faster, definitely the strongest Honda rider. We saw him able to cut through the traffic really well. We saw that he was able to just use his experience as, I think he's won three, eight hours in the past, to be able to use that to his best advantage. Kianari struggled in testing to be able to make the fuel runs, to be able to lap at the same pace as Bradle and uh, Takahashi. And I think Honda looked at it and thought, do you know what? If we're to have a chance of winning this race, it's going to be a lot more difficult with three riders. And I think that uh, on the morning of the race, Kianari said that he wasn't feeling well and that uh, he had sort of stepped down from racing. But uh, whether or not that's a Japanese rider sort of bowing to his corporate paymasters um, or not, I'm not really sure. But I think that if they had a ran Kianari, they wouldn't have had much chance by being able to stay in contention. But I think that their biggest issue was that they just didn't quite have the same pace as the Kawasaki's and the Yamaha's. If you look at the race as a whole, uh, Honda made up so much time in the pits. They made up, uh, I think it was 10 seconds or 12 seconds on the Kawasaki and they made up over 35 seconds on the Yamaha. 
And that basically translated into giving them that little bit of an advantage because they didn't have the same ultimate pace for their race stints as the other as the other bikes. And then obviously in the final hour, that all changed just because Takahashi, when it started to rain, having been on the bike for over four and a half hours, suddenly his pace dropped off at the end. But up until that point, it was actually the strategy that made the biggest difference for Honda. And that's a big surprise because last year it was strategy that really put them on the back foot all the way through the race. They had to race for fuel economy. Whereas this year they didn't really have that ability because they were in contention on outright pace. They're only a little bit behind uh, what we saw from the other riders, like a tenth of a second here, a tenth of a second there. And obviously over an eight hour race, that makes a big difference. But if you're able to make up 15 seconds in the pits on your rivals 35 seconds compared to the Yamahas suddenly having that tenth of a second disadvantage isn't as bad as what it could be otherwise and uh, you know, Honda made a big step with their bike they made a big step with their team and one of the things that they missed out on probably was that fuel economy this year because pretty much all the way through the race they were doing you know 29 lap stints compared to 28 laps for the Yamaha whereas last year they were doing at least two laps more for every stint compared to their rivals. And that gave them a big advantage for trying to be able to eke out an extra fuel stop. I know that we were texting each other through the race and you were asking me like, is it possible that they're going to do six stops? And I was pretty adamant from the start of the race after the, the first full stint, because obviously we had a safety car in stint one, but after stint two, I thought like, you know what? Anyone that's thinking that they're going to be running a stop less, they're not paying enough attention to the race because the pace was too hot to be able to run six stops for them in this year's race. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think if we shook the dice a little differently, things played out a little bit differently with strategy and maybe with riders that Honda had a winning package for this year, or is that just too big of a step for them to go? And if it is, what, what would you change? You're, you're, you're the HRC boss for EWC. What do you, what do you, see as uh, the winning package for next year i think david emmett's idea that we just put mark marquez out in the honda seems to make a lot of sense i'd love to see marquez at the eight hours i think it'd be fantastic i mean and, come uh, on right just give him the money it'd be fine like honda need to win again just put marquez on the bike but i think that if 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 i was honda and Obviously, this year you had Leon Camier injured again, and Leon's been out of action since the Aragon round of World SBK. He, is, he had his crash at uh, Imola in the Super Bowl session, so he's been out of action pretty much since the start of May. If Camier had been there as opposed to Kianari, I think they would have had three riders that would have been capable of just giving them that little bit extra. Because I think that when you look at, at uh, Yamaha, what's their big advantage? it's that they've got three riders that can all work together that are all really fast like at the end of the day Nakasuga is a MotoGP podium man he's been a pole man at uh, Suzuka I think this was his fifth career pole at Suzuka Uh, Lowe's has been able to win a lot of races and we saw again out on track yesterday that when Lowe's was out in that bike the Yamaha was the fastest bike out there more often than not he was able to make up a lot of time despite all the time that was lost in the pits they were able to find time whenever he was on the bike Vandermark isn't as fast as Nakasuga and uh, Lowe's at Suzuka and that just comes down to the fact that he's so much bigger than those riders he's trying to make the bike 
work around him whereas the handlebars aren't in the right places the foot pegs aren't in the right places he can't get as comfortable on this bike as his world championship bike but he's a world SBK race winner he's a super sport world champion he's got a ton of experience and that plays a big role that's why he's been able to win four eight hours in the past and why he's had so much success at Suzuka because he understands his role within a team and his role is to be as quick and as consistent as possible and just make sure that uh, you're able to get the most out of your stint he does that really well he does that better than any other third rider could do at Suzuka and I think that when you look at Kawasaki they didn't run top rack and for me that was a mistake because I think that uh, top rack's one of the form riders in the World Superbikes. He's riding as well as he's ever ridden. And I think that I would have liked to have seen Top Rack out in that bike, even just for an hour, just to have given him the experience, the eight hours. And as much as anything else, if you want to show Top Rack that you really want him on your World Superbike machine, I think it would have been good to have got him out there for an hour on the eight hours bike because his pace through the course of practice and testing was really impressive. He was out on old tyres all the time and still able to set fast lap times. I think that there was a bit of a fear that maybe he would have, you know, been caught out by inexperience in an endurance race, dealing with traffic, dealing with all those sort of things. But I think as long as he was feeling good on the bike, those wouldn't have been much of an issue for him. For Honda, they need to look at having that third rider because... I think that as good as Takahashi was, he clearly couldn't do five stints. As good as Stefan Bradle was, and Bradle did really well for a first ever eight hours, I think that they could have done with another rider to sort of spell the load. And having where Yamaha have three stints for Nakasuga, three stints for Lowe's, two stints for Vandermark, it allows their riders to stay fresh. That's why when we got to the final hour, even with the conditions as they were, we were able to see that... Uh, Lowe's was still able to close down that gap to Jonathan Ray and maybe some of that comes down from being a little bit fresher maybe some of it comes down from the fact that Jonathan Ray's out in front and he's just trying to manage his gap but uh, I think that there's lessons that can be learned from Yamaha because over the years they've been the most successful team in the last five years they've been the team that's really redefined how you have to approach the eight hours there's lessons to be learned from that because they don't have the fastest bike at Suzuka. They didn't have the fastest team in the pits this year and it really was the pit stops that cost them this race win. But they've got that experience to be able to maximise everything for eight hours. Because we talked in the preview show, Jensen, and in some of the stuff that I was writing for Asphalt and Rubber that uh, you know the eight hours we spend all the way through testing, all the way through practice, the qualifying sessions, we spend all the time thinking about who's able to do a 205, who's able to do 206s. We saw one 206 in the race, and that was in the last stint of the race when Jonathan Ray really pushed hard at the, hard, at the start of his stint. And uh, coincidentally, I was asking him about that, and he said that uh, through the first seven hours, you're trying to manage everything through the course of the race. You're not going to full power. You're not giving the bike everything it has. It was only in that final stint that he was told, you know what, there's 25 laps left in this race. Go out there and give it everything you have. That's whenever he was able to turn the wick up and that's whenever we saw the real pace of that uh, Kawasaki. But it comes down to being able to manage the race all the way through. I think Kawasaki can definitely learn from Yamaha. I think Honda can learn from Yamaha. But I also think that Yamaha can learn from the other teams to be able to see that, you know what, we need to improve in the pits. We need to be able to make a step so that we're not racing from behind the eight ball because that's really what they were doing. If you give 
Kawasaki and it might have been KRT's first ever endurance race. But if you give KRT a, you know, a 20 second head start in a race, it's even over eight hours, it's going to be hard to beat them. Yeah. No, I think I think you touched on something really strong there, Steve. You know, when I was listening to you talk, like I was thinking, you know, I don't want to take too much from stuff on Brattle, but Honda was really working with one and a half or one point seven five riders. Uh, Kawasaki was only working really with two riders. It was only really Yamaha that was working with three riders that that could share the load, and you know, they beat themselves because of of what the team was doing in the pits. They didn't beat themselves because what the riders were doing on the track. Um, and that opened the gap for, for Kawasaki. And, and maybe that's a testament to, to the package that Kawasaki had and the talents of, of Jonathan Ray, especially, but also let's not forget Leon Haslam in that mix. Um, it, it's interesting to see that, you know, I think, I think, you know, if, if Honda has a fatal flaw in the system here, it, it is the fact that you don't have three riders who can share the load. And I just, I had this weird thing with Kawasaki not running top rack where it's like, why did you even bother bringing the guy across, you know, all the way to Japan? If he's, if he's not going to turn a wheel in the race, what's the point? Um, I mean, I guess there's some value in having him understand what the whole buildup is and the qualifying and there's some experience there, but I mean, you don't hire a guy not to use him, which is exactly what it feels like. Yeah. Well, they did use top rack, but it was in testing and practice. And it's yeah. a big shame, you know, like, and, and Top Rack said it afterwards because in the press conference, everyone was asked like, you know, what's your thoughts on the race? You know, how hard was it? And Top Rack was kind of, he came in and like everyone, everyone that knows Top Rack knows that like, he's a really nice guy, but he wasn't confident speaking English for a long time. This year, he seems to have made a big change with that. And uh, probably working with Phil Maron and an Irish crew chief has probably helped him because he's having to, talk in English more he's having to listen in English more as well and the top rack came into the press conference and uh, his immediate response to being asked what he thought about the race was oh I'm so tired after that it's exhausting sitting there watching other riders race and uh, you know he was able to make a joke about it but for me the biggest problem with not racing top rack is he doesn't get that experience why is Michael van der Mark really strong at Suzuka? It's because he was given that experience whenever he probably wasn't as fast as the other riders. Toprak's the same size as van der Mark. He's at the same disadvantage out in the bike. It's really important for a rider at that disadvantage to learn how they have to race the eight hour. Obviously, Kawasaki's in a position to try and win the eight hours yesterday, and that plays into their factors. If this had been last year's race, where you know they crash out at half distance, they're out of contention. Top Rack would have had an hour on the bike, two hours on the bike. I think that uh, KRT looked at it from, and there's nothing wrong with this, they looked at it from a KRT perspective of making sure that they were able to win this race. Whereas I think when you look at two years ago, three years ago, when Vandermark had his first race for Yamaha, not even looking at whenever he was on the Honda, because his first year at the eight hours, his first win at the eight hours, I don't think he turned a wheel in the race or if he did, he only did like a short stint during the race, you know, and uh, he always jokes about the fact that, hey, doesn't matter how many laps I did. I still got my 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 winner's bonus and, uh, you know, Top Rack's still going to get his winner's bonus. But I think that if this was a, a factory Kawasaki effort as opposed to KRT bringing across the world superbike team to be able to run an eight hours project, I think that Kawasaki would have looked at it the same way Yamaha did in 
2017 with Van der Mark where he needs this experience even if it's going to hurt us a little bit by having him out in the bike in terms of you know we might have had another rider with greater potential speed on the bike because Rain has them certainly had that over top rack this week but it would have been really important to be able to give him that experience so that next year's eight hours that you can really lean on him because let's be honest looking at what top rack's been able to do this year in world Superbikes. Who's to say that he's not going to be a title contender next year, that he's not going to be winning races? And a rider like that is a rider you want to have on the eight hours bike. I think that that experience, even if it was only for just getting out there for an hour, could have made a big difference for Top Rack in the future. Obviously, Kawasaki won the race, so their decision is you know 100% correct. It's vindicated. But during the, the period where there was the uncertainty about the race result, I was talking to to one colleague up in the press in the media center and uh, all the way through the race I had uh, been talking to this guy and we'd been sort of saying that yeah you know if Honda want to win this race they shouldn't put Keanari on the bike because they'll lose too much time if they want to win this race you know they'll have to get uh, Takahashi to double stint at the end of it because they needed to have his speed he had been faster than Bradle it didn't work out but for me that was the right decision not to put Bradle back on the bike, take your gamble, you know, and uh, see whether or not you're able to win that race with Takahashi. For me, the whole way through the race, I'd said that if Kawasaki want to have their fastest eight hours, you keep Top Rack off the bike. But it's a different decision than what happens with Kianari because Top Rack was more competitive than Kianari. Top Rack's been so confident in superbikes this year. Top Rack's a young rider that for me, I would have liked to have seen them put Top Rack out there. When it looked like they'd lost the race, it's one of those moments where you think that, um, you know, the decision not to put Top Rack on the bike maybe isn't the right decision. By winning the race, their decision's been vindicated, though. Is there any part of this that, uh, since... That's also a very convoluted answer, by the way, (laughs) JP, where I totally contradicted myself. But that's the thing about endurance racing. It's, It's... really complex to be able to to get the right decisions at the right times no for sure it's not it's not nearly as straight cut and straightforward as you know traditional circuit racing i'm curious if you think the fact that the kawasaki team is essentially the kawasaki world superbike team and it was insert your verb here trust the reliance knowing the devil you know of saying like hey we know haslam we know ray these are our guys. We we know they'll get the job done. Top Rock, on the other hand, he's not one of our guys. Question marks there. Let's stick to what we know. Or, you know, a little inside baseball. Or is it just purely like, hey, we're so close to winning. This would be such a huge coup for us. Maybe there's a little pressure of, hey, you know, we're we are the KRT team. We're not the the you know the the traditional team, the team green. Um, we've got to get this done and we're going to put Johnny Ray in because Johnny Ray gets it done. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, if your decision is to put Jonathan Ray on any bike, you're making the right decision, you know, because, and for sure in that last stint, there was no way that anyone else was getting on that bike other than Ray. Not only is it KRT that's running this outfit, but Jonathan was just faster than everyone else through the course of this week. He was faster than Haslam. He was faster than Top Rack. You put him on that last stint. Haslam was sick all the way through the race. He was thrown up before every stint yesterday. He was in a really 
bad, bad way. And he was still able to do a really good job. Fair play to, to Leon because his pace was good through the course of the race and he was able to get the job done. But I think that um, trust is probably the right way of looking at it. And also, maybe a decision's been made that Toprak's not going to be racing for Kawasaki next year. You know, because we know that he's been linked to replacing Alex Lowe's at Yamaha and a decision on that seems fairly close to being announced so whether or not that uh, top rack may or may not be a kawasaki rider next year plays into this maybe for top rack this now really plays into his decision as well because maybe top rack has uh, hasn't enjoyed racing for that team this year he hasn't enjoyed working with them this year you know those kind of factors can all play in and there's a big human element to every class of racing like we see it with um Ray's side of the pit box in World SBK perfectly illustrates it because they're in it together. They're in it for each other the whole way through. And nearly every time that you interview Jonathan over the course of a World Superbike season, his crew are sitting there watching him. You know, they're they're a family unit. And that trust seems to make a, a massive difference for them. And for KRT, maybe that plays a big factor in not putting top rack on the bike even for an hour. No, I think I think you hit the nail on the head for me because it, it does come down to trust. And, and I can see it in Honda with Kiro and you say, like, we don't trust you to get the lap done because you haven't proven to us that you're getting the lap done. And that's that's less about trust. And it's more just like a very practical, like, we're not competitive with you on the bike and we need a very Japanese reason for you not to race. So you're going to be sick tomorrow. But for Kawasaki to see the pace that Top Rock had and to see, you know, He's going to be a boon to this this team. And then to say, but we're not going to put you on the bike. That to me says, we don't trust you with this baby. We don't trust you to help us win. And that's where we're sitting with you. And if I was wanting to um, slowly dissolve a relationship, that would be a good way of doing it. You know, it doesn't seem like the actions of a manufacturer that wants to woo him into their ranks for next year. And uh, it'll be and interesting. Again, that It'll be interesting again, to that, see where that, that, that takes us as uh, the World Superbike season comes back and we start hearing the rider contracts for next year announced. Yeah, and again, that comes back to what's made Top Rack really good this year. It's the fact that he's got a team around him that believes in him. It's got a team around him that looks at the situation and says, okay, Top Rack, you've got talent coming out of every port. Top Rack can do things in the bike that no one else in World Superbikes can do. And the team have looked at it and said, what do you need on a bike to make it work well? Top Rack needs a, a really strong front end that gives them good feeling. Now, let's be honest, with a Bridgestone tyre, every front end feels amazing. Top Rack would have been, if if he's on a Suzuka spec bike that's built around him, he's going to be an absolute weapon out there. Maybe with the Kawasaki setup for Ray and, and to a lesser extent for Haslam, he wasn't able to get as comfortable on that bike. But... The reason that Top Rack's made a massive step forward this year is because the team are looking at it and saying, this is what you need. Let's try and figure out a way to give you what you need. This is what you do well. Let's try and maximize that. This is what you don't do well. Let's try and work on that. Suddenly you go into a new environment and KRT is a new environment for him. He's working with different people and different cultures. And uh, the culture within Pichetti is to be able to put an arm around the shoulder of Top Rack. It's to be able to show him, we're going to make you learn and understand how this bike works and we're going to try and improve you 
But this is why we're trying to do it. They're trying to explain to him what he can do to be a better rider. I think looking from the outside in, whenever I've seen him with KRT, you've seen it where it's much more a case of our bike is really successful. Our team is really successful. This is why we're really successful. And we see that with KRT all the time. We've seen Jonathan Ray over the years say that, uh, you know, Kawasaki have been telling him his diet. They've been telling him different things that you have to do to get yourself ready to be able to win in superbikes. And obviously over the last five years, no one's been able to win as much as Jonathan Ray. So he's sort of disregarded some of that. He's been able to look at it and say, do you know what? I'm, you know, over the last few years, I'm, you know, 30, 31 years of age. And uh, I know what I have to do to get at my best to be able to race. For Toprak, he doesn't have that same experience where he's able to sort of say, you know what? This is what I have to do to be able to perform. Suddenly he's probably looking at it and saying, I don't need to be told what I have to do. I need to be able just to try and focus on my job at hand. He's a different personality. I think his personality wouldn't mesh really well with that culture that you have at uh, KRT. And, and like there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with KRT's approach because it works. They've been able to win world championships with Tom Sykes and Jonathan Ray. They've been able to win races with Lars Baz with this approach. It works really well. But it's a bit like with Aki Ayo in in uh, MotoGP it works really well for certain riders it's a bit like the VR46 Academy it works really well for certain riders but then you get your outliers you get your riders that have tons of talent that it just doesn't doesn't click Nico Antonelli's been a rider that everyone in the Moto3 paddock has said over the years is super talented Fanati a rider that's super talented I was going to say talented. Romano <laughs> you know, sometimes you get a Romano Fanati yeah you know, but they're, they're riders that can do things on a bike that on their day no one else can do. Toprak can do things that no one else can do, but maybe he needs an arm around the shoulder rather than a disciplinarian approach. And all those factors can play into a decision about what happens within the within the eight hours, what happens for the future for Toprak. Taking Toprak aside, how do you score the KRT outfit for Suzuka this year coming from old Superbike, coming into EWC. I mean, it's hard to argue with a victory, but how do you, how do you see them making that transition? What's your, what's your report card say? I give them an 11 out of 10 because they've turned up with minimal testing. They've turned up without having a Japanese rider running around Suzuka for months on end, trying to test everything out. They've, they've not, being able to understand everything about this bike to the same degree that even if you look at Team Green last year or you look at Yamaha over the last few years, you look at Honda, like the Honda and Yamaha have got Takahashi and Nakasuga, two world-class riders that the eight hours is their primary focus. Yeah, they race in the Japanese Superbike Championship, but make no mistake about it, no one in those manufacturers cares about winning the Japanese championship half as much as they care about winning the eight hours so if you're going up against that kind of commitment to the eight hours that kind of experience for the eight hours and you're doing it on the back of I think they had the two official tests and uh, then the Wednesday and Thursday of testing this week and then the race weekend and you're trying to figure out everything on the fly like that it's really impressive and fair enough that uh, Ray has them. They've got experience at Suzuka. Pereira went across and was leading the project last year for Team Green. But when you look around that pit box, you had 
mechanics that were doing this race for the first time, electronics engineers doing the race for the first time, um, technicians doing the race for the first time. The Japanese people in that pit box were doing the pit stops. They weren't running the team. They weren't making decisions about the bike. They weren't being as integral as what you'd see typically at Suzuka. This was a European team going on to take on the Japanese and uh, to be able to go across your first ever endurance race and win the eight hours, that's unbelievable. And I think they did a really good job. And that's where, again, like I said earlier on, that's where it's so frustrating that the red flag and those sort of incidents um, sort of take precedence in your mind because I think Kawasaki did a fantastic job. I think Rain Haslam did a tremendous job. I think it's very easy to overlook Toprak's contribution, but he went over, he's raced in the Japanese Superbike Championship to try and understand Bridgestone tyres. He's been involved in the test programme and, uh, you know, he's played a big role in that. And I think that... KRT should be commended for what they've been able to achieve this week. Hmm. How do you contrast that to to Yamaha? Um, I mean, <laughs> they came so close to getting five in a row. Uh, and for a minute there, they did. But um, it seems like that they failed to evolve while their competition did. Well, I remember 12 months ago, I was... Um, talking to Lowe's about what it means that Ray is back, that, uh, you know, Paribo was coming across to look after the team and what it means for the challenge that comes from the eight hours for Yamaha. And he said, the Kawasaki is the best superbike in the world. And maybe it isn't anymore with the, with the, the Ducati V4, but in terms of the bikes that are at Suzuka, it is the best bike in the world because you look at the success that the ZX-10Rs had over the World Championship, the British Championship, it's been the bike to beat. It's the best base model bike from a Japanese manufacturer. And you've got Jonathan Ray that, you know, is a four-time world champion. Anytime that Ray lines up on a, on a superbike, he should start the race as one of the favourites. Kawasaki ticked all the boxes and 12 months ago, Lowe said... We're going to have to be at our absolute best, not make any mistakes to be able to win this race. But he didn't think Yamaha should have been considered the favourites last year. And we saw that um, with uh, Kawasaki last year, they led the practice sessions. They started on pole. They led the first half of the race before running out of fuel. And then Jonathan Ray's crash as well. And uh, coming forward to this year, you've got the team that has won in World Superbikes over the last few years leading that outfit. You've got Ray and Haslam, two race winners. You've got Top Rack coming through. And you've got a bike that, once again, is you know on course to win the World Championship. And, you know, I don't think Yamaha... It's not so much that Yamaha didn't make a step forward. It's that Kawasaki didn't make the mistakes this year. Yamaha were slower in the pits and that's something that they're going to have to look at. That's something that they'll have to analyse because it was their pit stops that cost them this this uh, this victory. Losing, I think, as I said earlier on, over 20 seconds to Kawasaki in the pits. If they had have been able to match Kawasaki in the pits, going into that final stint, you would have had Lowe's and uh, Ray neck and neck at the start of that final stint. That would have been tremendous. I said halfway through the race that we were had uh, Ray against Nakasuga out on track. They both pitted at the same time. And I, I said, like, get your popcorn ready because this is going to be everything you want to see in a race. 
And I think we would have had that in the final stint as well with the two fastest riders around Suzuka and uh, the two fastest bikes. Not an awful lot between them out on track because, as I said earlier on, whenever you take away the, the time loss in the pits, those two bikes were pretty much identical pace. Ray and Lowe's were pretty much identical pace. This would have been an absolute barnstorm and a finish. And then we would have had the spots of rain as well. We would have had both riders having to ride on their absolute limit. It would have been an amazing spectacle. And for Yamaha, they'll need to analyse how they can get better in the pits. They made a mistake at the last pit stop. It cost them about eight seconds by not being able to get the front wheel changed. And those eight seconds, again, that could have made the world a difference because suddenly at the start of that final stint, Lowe's comes out, 15 seconds behind rather than 20, 25 seconds behind with 15 laps to go. He would have felt that he would have had a chance with traffic falling his way of maybe being able to close right up on Ray, but making up 25 seconds, that's a very different story. You know, there's a a lot of factors that go into an eight hour race and luck is definitely one of them. But uh, Kawasaki made their own luck as well because they've been able to develop a great bike been able to develop a great team around this they've made the right decisions and they've upped the game at the eight hours you know yamaha forced everyone else to up their game in recent years this year we saw the fastest eight hours pretty much ever yeah fair enough we had uh, other races that went slightly longer but the pace of this race with three bikes at the front all the way through was so intense it was so different to anything else we've ever seen here that uh you know it's kawasaki once again up in the game and that's where you know in 12 months time it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens here yeah it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this is the final round of the fim endurance world championship and that there's there's actually a a bigger plot than just what we saw at the front three spots um steve take me really quick through what Suzuka meant for that championship and and who the players were for for our listeners that don't know well we had uh, the SRC Kawasaki the number 11 Kawasaki we had the number two search out there as well the Suzuki and uh, we had the TSR Honda as well the number one the reigning world champions out there and they were really the three contenders for winning the world championship and as you said Jensen like this is the final round of the Endurance World Championship, there's pretty much double points up for grabs and there's a lot of bonus points there as well. And this was a race within a race because for the eight hours, a lot of it comes down to who's able to make the Bridgestone tyres work, who's able to get Bridgestone tyres on their bike. The TSR team has Bridgestones, whereas it's uh, Dunlops for the other two teams. And uh, if you're racing around Suzuka on Dunlops or Pirelli. Kawasaki's really on Pirelli, str- aren't they? Kawasaki's on Pirelli, yeah. And uh, you're racing around on those tyres, you're not going to stand much chance because your goal is to finish inside the top 10 rather than to finish in the podium spots. TRC go to Suzuka every year feeling that they've got a chance of being able to win this race or at least be able to finish on the podium. And uh, if you're able to pick up all those points, you can put yourself back into contention in the World Championships. We've seen them do it in the past. This year, it didn't uh, quite play out like that. In all fairness, just because of how competitive the Kawasaki, Yamaha and the lead Honda teams were because suddenly TSR weren't able to make up enough points given that they had uh, some issues earlier in the season. But the Endurance World Championship is a bit of a strange one because 
Suzuka, for me, it's an invitational race that just happens under the blanket or under the guise of the Endurance World Championship. And every time I go to Suzuka, as bad as it is to say, I'm not paying much attention to the Endurance World Championship. I don't watch the other races. I don't uh, work at the other races. I'll keep an eye on them and you know see what the results are. But I'm not sitting down to watch eight hours of Ossershausen like I'm sitting down to watch eight hours of Suzuka. It'll be on the telly and I'll be paying attention to it. But I'm not... Uh, I'm not getting up in the middle of the night if I was over in the US or, you know, in Europe for one of the flyaway races. I wouldn't get up to watch them to the same degree because the eight hours is something special. This is the same as it is for a lot of casual bike fans where they'll sit up and they'll look for the results of the TT and they'll look at the highlights program of the TT, but they won't sit up to watch, you know, the Northwest 200, the Ulster Grand Prix, Macau, those races aren't as significant as the TT. And the eight hours is a bit like that in the Endurance World Championship. This is a world championship. It matters to the teams and the riders taking part in it. But for a lot of fans, and you know, I- I'll group myself in that as well, the rest of the season doesn't mean as much as the eight hours. And you know, I'm sure that for... The teams, the riders and all of the people working in the Endurance World Championship and it's a great championship and there's been some great racing this year. They'd they'd, uh, take offence to that but I think that that's also fairly common all the way across that this is the race that matters and it's a big shame that the championship always goes down to Suzuka and it always goes down to those last couple of laps to see who's able to get it across the line to be able to win the championship. There's only ever a few points in it. And it's a, like, it is a big shame that uh, it doesn't carry the same level of importance as who's able to actually get it across the line to win the eight hours. But it probably should do. You know, and I think that this was another season where it went right down to the wire. It went down to the last five minutes. The Surt expired from a championship winning position and the Kawasaki team, despite a crash earlier in the race, were able to come through and win the world championship. And, you know, it, it's again another example that in racing, it's never over until it's over. And you got to make sure that you're able to get to the finish and you got to make sure that you're able to get the job done right at the end of the season. Yeah, it's interesting to point out at least that the Endurance World Championship is the only m- international motorcycle series that has a true tire war still in effect um and that we see the podium consisting of teams that are all on different tires um that's something that i do kind of miss in motorcycle racing and and it is one of the the outliers for ewc that that does intrigue me but i I think you're right steve you know suzuka is the tt to the ewc's irish road racing um, you know, it is the one that gets the headlines. I know as, as a publisher, you know, we don't really cover too much of the endurance world championship, but we do cover Suzuka pretty hard. And there's a reason for that, but it does add a interesting kind of subplot. It does add a little bit of a distraction during the, there wasn't very many dull moments to this year's Suzuka, but it is interesting to check in every few hours to see what the points were because there was a real three-way scrap for for the lead. You know, it was a little tough watching it for the TSR guys because they're running in fourth place. Like, what what more do you want from them? Like, 
a, a top three finish is just not in the cards when you have factory teams that are that strong and their fate is really in the hands of their competitors and to watch you know cert go up and down the rankings and to see uh, the SRC Kawasaki crash and what what that does and uh, you know at one point I think there was two and a half points between them and they finished the race a, a point difference um so you know it is exciting when it's that close you know i you know we can kind of come into it a little late you know shame on us for for not being so diligent uh to watch them throughout the season but it is you know at least for me it was enter- entertaining to see oh hey like this is really close there's there's some intrigue here too and you know i've got my favorites and and who i want to see and oh, oh oh then the bike crashes and oh there goes there goes an oil spill and uh, it's good drama. It just adds another layer to the narrative that is the Suzuki Eight Hours. Yeah, and and like it is really cool. You know, like endurance racing in in its essence is really cool. Everyone enjoys it. It's uh, something different. It's not about being flat out fastest. It's not about uh, different things. Like when you look at the twenty four hours at Le Mans or the Baldor, like it's unbelievable. It's just a case of when you get to the eight hours, it's overshadowed because you've got some of the best riders in the world out there. And obviously in the Endurance World Championship, you've got great riders as well. You've got riders that have raced in MotoGP and World Superbikes and at really high levels. But you tend to look at races from the top down. You tend to look at your results sheets and it's like anything else. It's when you see the TT and there's some newcomer that goes out and he does a 120 mile an hour lap. He's ridden just as hard as Peter Hickman doing a 135 mile an hour lap. But the level of excitement for fans watching comes from Peter Hickman's exploits rather than the newcomer that's been able to get to his limit. You know, and it's a bit like that in Suzuka as well, where the excitement comes from seeing kawasaki yamaha and honda going toe-to-toe all the way through that race and i think that if this was a more traditional eight hours where we would have had you know let's be honest the race result last year was decided at half distance you know then suddenly that's where the attention starts to shift much more to the endurance world championship standings but i didn't want to take my eyes off the top three yesterday and even with as tight a championship as it was in the EWC standings, it was going to take something spectacular to shift your focus to to that championship. And it took that in the last five minutes when we had the cert explode, you know, and suddenly you're able to look, oh my God, the championship's changed hands completely now. But through the course of the eight hours, as you said, Jensen, it did ebb and flow a little bit. The Kawasaki has its crash and suddenly it's out of a championship winning position, starts in the championship winning position, and then it turns again in the last five minutes. And there was only ever a couple of points between them. But uh, there's a difference between that championship with those couple of points in it, where again, you're sort of pretty clear from an early stage in the race that you needed something to go wrong for Surt for Kawasaki to win that championship. Whereas in the battle at the front, you knew that we were going to have an absolute full bore flat out blast all the way through that race. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, well, Steve, it's just about that witching hour. Do you have anything else to add or should we wrap it up? 
Uh, I think that's pretty much covered as much as we'd need to cover about the eight hours, but there's definitely more that you could cover about it. And actually, just going back to one of the things you mentioned there, Jensen, just about the tire war, I think it's really cool that we've got a tire war. I think it's it just adds that level of something different to the race. And uh, I know that I wrote something for A&R just about the differences between the different tires because last year we had uh, Michael Laverty was here racing for BMW and Pirelli tires and you had uh, Sylvain Gintoli as well over the last few years racing for Suzuki and I was asking those two riders about like what's the differences between the tires and uh, Laverty just said go out and look at the Dunlop corner because I'm five seven eight feet wider than the Bridgestones through that corner it's such a long corner that the Bridgestone's just able to hook up all the way through it and it's just able to get all that drive grip whereas the Pirelli just can't manage to get its tyre or the Pirelli riders can't get that tyre to hook up in the same way. So they just lose so much time through that one corner. And it was a perfect example of the challenges that the Pirelli riders have around Suzuka. And it's the same for the Dunlop riders. There's things that the Dunlop tyre does better than any other tyre but that it just can't make work at Suzuka. And having those differences means that, again, you've got your subplots all the way through the race and you're able to look at what's going to be an interesting battle through the course of the race. And in the previews that I was doing for for you, Jensen, or for a few other publications, I was saying what's going to be interesting is the battle between the Marowaki on the Pirelli tyres and the Cert bike on the Dunlop tyres, because you've got two fast bikes with three good riders on different tyres. And, you know, I thought in the lead up to the race that they were going to have a real battle all the way through it. The surf bike was a lap in front of the Marowaki, but their pace wasn't that dissimilar despite different manufacturers, different tires, different riders, you know, different demands. And I thought that uh, that's one of the cool subplots that we have in endurance racing. You know, I've talked to some other tire manufacturers about Suzuka that, that aren't Bridgestone and, you know, they talk about the challenges that are very unique to that circuit that are unique to that, location at that time of year it's very hot it's very humid um the track has uh, some interesting uh, abrasive characteristics and it's it's definitely a um atypical situation which is part of the the problem there but it's interesting for me or i should say i'm happy to see the tire war in ewc because it means that other tire manufacturers have a motivation to develop tires for that race. And while Bridgestone is the, uh, I mean, you, you essentially have to be running Bridgestones if you want to win. You know, the results show that for us. Um, but I don't think it's going to be like that forever. And I like the fact that there, at least there is some racing that exists out there that is still pushing tire manufacturers to grow. And it's still, competition improves the breed and it's not you know single spec tire contracts where you know we design the tire to you know help the the show as it were this is all about performance if you're the best performing tire that's what you know we're going to use in this series type of thing i like that yeah i think that um we could see other manufacturers come in and compete let's say michelin decide that they want to really be able to rub their noses in Bridgestone's faces and go to Suzuka and be able to win that race. But I think it would take an awful lot of effort because the Japanese manufacturers 
they're tied into their Bridgestone deals. They're tied into testing at Suzuka extensively. Are you going to be able to compete with that if you're another manufacturer? I'm sure that you know, you're able to simulate things, you're able to do an awful lot. But are you going to be able to get the top riders? Are you going to be able to get the top teams? There's going to be a lot of factors in that because if you're, let's say, for example, KRT, and they come across their Peretti team in World Superbikes, but Kawasaki wanted to run Bridgestones. If you're KRT, would you run something else? Or are you going to run with what is established as being that uh, favorite tire? What makes you think it would be a Japanese manufacturer, Stephen? Well, that's a very good point. But if you're if you're Ducati out there, and let's be honest, the Ducati would be an unbelievable bike at uh, Suzuka. Talking to... Um, even Tommy Bridewell this week, obviously he mm-hmm. he had to do four mm-hmm. stints on the Suzuki on the Suzuki bike. He's gotten used to riding the Ducati, and compared to last year, the thoughts from Bridewell were really interesting because suddenly this race was so much more physical. This race was so much more difficult. The bike wasn't as perfect as it had been twelve months ago. Whereas with the Ducati, with the wings, with the way that that bike is set up, with the engine it has. You've got a lot more ability to be able to ride less physically. When Eugene Laverty made his comeback at Donington, he said that the only reason he even attempted Donington Park to come back after his wrist injury was because the Ducati isn't as physical as any other bike he's ridden. Now, having a bike that's not super physical at uh, that level would be a massive benefit at Suzuka because it's so hot, it's so humid, it's so demanding. And even if it's just... 10% 10% less physical that could make the world a difference for for a rider but I also think that uh, even if Ducati were to come back or were to go to Suzuka to try and win on it they've got experience of a MotoGP bike with Bridgestone tires this is a MotoGP derived bike that they've turned into a super bike that was designed when they were running Bridgestone tires so if Ducati were to come back I can't imagine them running anything other than Bridgestones either. I don't know about that. Uh, knowing knowing how closely linked Ducati is to Pirelli, I don't think Ducati uh, goes racing uh, on anything other than Pirelli when they have the choice. But um, it is interesting for me to see, especially now as we're kind of getting back into a golden period for Suzuka and we're seeing such... Uh, large investments from manufacturers. We're seeing riders coming from Superbike. We're seeing riders coming from GP. Um, there has to come a time when we see a BMW or we see a Ducati or we see, I don't know, maybe a Prilia. That seems like a little bit far, far-fetched, but not you know completely unreasonable. Um, come and say, hey, this is this is an interesting race that you guys have been doing for a while. Let us come play. Let's come into your backyard and ruffle things up because. You know, to use Ducati as an example, if Ducati came in and got on the podium or won at the Suzuka 8-hour, that would be a huge media coup. And that's a, that's a marketing target that's hard to say no to. And when, you know, be curious how many more years they can say no to it. I would be very surprised if uh, Ducati aren't racing at Suzuka in the next couple of years because Gigi Delinia, I've talked to him at uh, the Imola Superbike Ground and I was asking him about like the V4R and the project that they have and the importance of it. And he said that the biggest thing for them is Ducati want to go and win races that they haven't won before. 
uh, in 12 months ago, whenever Glenn Irwin won at the, at the Northwest 200, I was asking him what he thought about winning that race. And he said it was so cool for Ducati to go out and win a race like that, to take on, you know, BMW and uh, Honda and, you know, the established Kawasaki, the established bikes on the roads and to be able to beat them was really important for Ducati. It's the same with the level that they try and put out in World Superbikes and British Superbikes, they want to win those championships and they want to show that, you know, a 40 grand Ducati is better than every other bike out there. They want your money. They want to be able to make sure that these bikes sell. And if they were to put their effort into going to Suzuka, you know, you wouldn't be the least bit surprised that they were ultra successful at Suzuka as well. I got to spin some laps on the uh, Panigale before our at Laguna Seca, Steve, and I can tell you that bike is worth every dollar of that $40,000 price tag. It is quite an amazing machine. Um, it would be really something to see to see them come out and play. Uh, I really hope that that happens sometime soon because they, they sure as heck didn't spend all that money developing that bike uh, to have it just sit in the World Superbike paddock. I have to say, Jensen, the Possibly the only thing more impressive than the V4R is the fact that you've managed to get 80 minutes on this show before saying, oh yeah, I happened to ride the V4R. I thought you were going to use that as your opening for the show. Hello, welcome to the Suzuka show. This is Jensen Beeler, a man that's ridden the Ducati V4R. And uh, let's talk about the eight hours. <laughs> I mean, I am going to name my first child after it. That's just that's just how that's going to be. But, uh, you know, I'm trying to... He's going to call it a penny. <laughs> trying to live a more modest lifestyle. Um, with that, sir, we're just about an hour and a half into it, so we should probably wrap up. But uh, thank you for all your coverage from on the ground at the Suzuka. This is absolutely a fantastic race to watch at home, and I can only imagine what it was like trackside. Um, you know, it's just got me that much more anxious to to watch next year's edition because it's just the chapters in this book just keep getting better and better and better. Yeah, it's definitely one of those races that the second this race finished or the second that, you know, the results were confirmed and everything was done and dusted, everyone just suddenly thinking like, oh my God, we have to wait 12 months for another one of these because this was such an amazing race. Like I've, I've been lucky enough to cover pretty much every big race, cars and bikes in the world. And uh, this was the probably other than Sepang in 2015, this is the one race where I've seen, you know, everyone on the edge of their seats, everyone understanding that they were witnessing something really special. And uh, that's what this race was. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Well, with that, Steve, we should remind our listeners to follow us on social media. We are Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. If you listen to us through the apple podcasting app please leave a rating and review it helps other listeners find our show and if you want to help support the paddock pass podcast you can do so by becoming a patreon subscriber where you get exclusive audio content from all of the racing rounds we attend and it goes to steve's suzuka budget it goes to um my track days at laguna seca that's not true at all but it should but it definitely helps us. For, I'll tell you uh, what, 40 grand for that uh, V4R, Jensen. You need all the help you can get. We're going to need sure a, to support the podcast. <laughs> we're going to need a few subscribers to get the uh, Paddock Pass. Ooh, Paddock Pass podcast, Panigale V4R. 
Ooh, man, that's that's not easy to say three times fast. But no, it does go to help uh, send um, David, Steve, Neil, myself, Gordo, and others to the uh, races that we cover. So you definitely help support the show, and you get some exclusive content as well. It's a pretty good deal if you ask me. I think I think we're starting things at just a dollar, which is just we gotta fix that. That's too cheap. But uh, until next time, Steve, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for uh, taking the time in the wee morning hours to talk a little superbike racing with me. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks very much, Jensen. And uh, hopefully it's not uh, 12 months until you're back on the show. Yeah, hopefully. We'll see. We'll have to talk to the guys. (laughs) All right, Steve. Good talking. I'll see you out there.